This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. When people look to to get better or to heal, they find what's right for them. It's not right? Psychotherapy or any other kind of modality is not for everyone. Speaking of parenthood, right? That is the one thing that is the most important thing in my mind is that we need to know what's right for us. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Emotional Inheritance with Dr. Galit Atlas. Dr. Atlas is an author, psychoanalyst, and clinical supervisor in private practice in New York City. Her latest and newest book is Emotional Inheritance, A Therapist, Her Patients, and the Legacy of Trauma, which we will be talking about in depth today. Dr. Galit is on the faculty of NYU's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, as well as a faculty member of the National Training Program at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies. She was a contributor to the New York Times column Couch, and her New York Times publication, A Tale of Two Twins, was the winner of a 2016 Gradivo Award. She is a leader in the field of relational psychoanalysis. She is a recipient of several awards and is sought after lecturer here and abroad. Galit, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> uh, I'm I've, happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I have to say, you had several um, beautiful reviews, wonderful reviews of your new book. And uh, one just really caught my attention, Dr. Bruce Perry, who is uh, someone who I've followed for a long time, admire his work, and a lot of people know Mm -hmm. is an eminent um, research, brain researcher, trauma specialist, advocate. I mean, he's been a wonderful light in the field of brain development and trauma. He described your book as beautiful, artistic, and elegant. And I have to say, as I was reading your book, I was just moved by the respect in which you wrote, which you write, and also how you tell the story in a way that you weave yourself into the story, which 
is so different than classical psychoanalysis and how far, you know, you have taken this and how far the field has come in relational psychoanalysis. Right. Right. Is it a conflict? Was it ever a conflict for you to share so much of yourself given your training? And I guess it's a two-part question. Was your training as a psychoanalyst classical? And how did it become progressive? So, you know, originally I am from a generation that it, that was trained classically, right? Mm-hmm. I'm more mm-hmm. than 20 years in this field. And when I moved to New York and I'm part of the postdoctoral program, uh, I'm a faculty member, actually, mm-hmm. the postdoctoral program at NYU. And that is a place where a lot of the revolution happened mm-hmm. of contemporary psychoanalysis. So we shifted into a two-person model, which means for our listeners that the psycho the psychologist the psychoanalyst is not neutral and can never be neutral mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this is my th- third publication actually my first uh, three my three publications before were books for clinicians Mm-hmm. And in those books where I teach theory, I sneaked like, you know, the parents know the Sneaky Chef uh, book. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. You sneak the, the, the good ingredients with, so yeah. the kids don't, uh, don't notice it. Uh, so I sneaked into those professional books my theory of in cl- instead of clinical cases, we're talking about clinical tales. Mm. What that means is, a tale is something that includes our own subjectivity, our own psychology as therapists, because a case that is presented as objective is never objective. And this is what contemporary psychoanalysis is about. It's about two people sitting together in a room and influencing each other. Yes, yes. Um, you're, you're reminding me of a recent discussion with a colleague, and we were talking about actually projective uh, testing um, and the Rorschach mm-hmm. and and one of the right. colleagues was giving the analysis of the projective testing and another colleague says you just projected your answer onto the projective <laughs> testing right like nothing really is objective exactly. it's all it's all it's all subjective right Right. Uh, and then we work with that, right? Yes, I mean, in the yes. book, I talk about myself because when I sit with a patient. And they have trauma, and it, if it's a reminder of my trauma, or if I go through something, it doesn't mean I share it with them necessarily, but what it mm-hmm. means is that I have to work with myself. I have to work yes. to understand myself as much as I understand them. Yes. And um, you start in your book by sharing of yourself, which, um, you know, as, a, as, as therapists, we we always and only bring ourselves into the room and it's that awareness of who we are what our own triggers are what our own remembrances is and as you said you know what do we share what do we not share how do we use it mm-hmm. um tell everyone i mean your story starts with where you're from where your parents are from and your very um i'm going to like colorful um upbringing there's so much there's so much um mm-hmm. meaning and music and loss mm-hmm. um share right. with everyone a bit about your your upbringing i love when you say music and loss because i think these are the two things that the book is going back and forth 
Um, I grew up uh, in Israel. My parents moved, immigrated when they were young children. My father is from Iran. My mother is from Syria. So in the book, I talk a little bit about their own traumas about from when they were children about immigration, about racism mm-hmm. that's coming from these Arab countries, and of course, my own immigration and the family history of loss. And I think I start the book with talking about the unspeakable, all of those things that we cannot talk about that are that are there between people silently. And how the beginning of my personal journey was related to music and the loud music, I would say. I, I started, I, I was a musician in my teens and 20s. While I was studying psychology, I did, I had a whole career as a rock and roll musician. Mm. And I'm talking about it. I'm talking about serving in the army as a musician. Right. And about those traumas and how it is related to music, to words, to sounds, to what we could express or not express mm-hmm. in our families mm-hmm. and how we process those. And, and so many, you know, with music, so many cultures um, mm. throughout time, there, there was no therapy you know, there was, uh, it was, it was people would process through sound, mm-hmm. music, dance, ritual, um, and yeah. the, the sensory connection um, is healing with community. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly that, you know, I think one of my goals in writing this book was not as opposed to teaching people something about trauma was to actually make you feel feel something, healing through the actual reading that touches your heart, which is related to the rituals, the smells, right? Mm -hmm. And when I describe therapy, the sounds, the smells, the feelings, everything that is not just about words or intellectual analyzing Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And we know with trauma, um, Mm -hmm. our bodies, uh, both consciously and unconsciously, try to they protect us from those feelings, which does have, right. it does have a, um, as you point out, there is a, um, a survival. There's a reason we go into dissociation or we numb or we check out. Um, it's, it, it protects us. And yet at the same time, it limits us um, from so many of life's full uh, meanings and connections. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is exactly this dialectic tension, right, between really respecting defenses and not pushing things that are premature Mm -hmm. and knowing how important it is, right, to dissociate Mm -hmm. or to repress or to not feel something fully Mm -hmm. in order to maintain our Mm well-being. And as you said, and yet there is another layer that does not allow us to be fully alive fully engaged if mm-hmm. our defenses are too right strict rigid mm-hmm. which sometimes and i think that's where the next generation comes in sometimes some of the emotional work cannot be done by the people who are traumatized and the next generation will have to do some of that mm-hmm. work which is a 
we're going to talk about that, which is just, it's a, mm-hmm. I, I want to say like mind blowing concept. It really is the, the idea of we feel the trauma of our ancestors. I mean, not only feel the trauma of our ancestors, we, um, gen- it comes to us through DNA and through genetics. Um, mm-hmm. The way your book is, I, I, I wanted to let everyone know because the way the book is laid out is it, it's just, it just flows from the first section on grandparents, the second section on parent, your parents, and then the first section on oneself and our own um, secrets that we may or may not know that we're keeping. The, the idea of emotional inheritance of trauma is relatively new. Yes? Right. Right. It is relatively new. The, the first research that was done was after World War II, and it was with Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, it wasn't right after the war. It took a few years uh, to the next generation to be old enough. So, uh, so it was actually in, around the 60s where psycho, um, psychoanalysis started talking about that. And most of the psychoanalysts who wrote about it were themselves Holocaust survivors and their mm-hmm. patients were Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s, uh, re- neuroscience and, and mm-hmm. research on epigenetics um, appeared and, and basically confirmed what we knew. It gave it a slightly different explanation. And as you can mm-hmm. see in the book and, and in, in general, right, psychologists, and we're, we're always asking what's nature and what's nurture. Mm-hmm. Um, the epigenetic is more right on one side and then um, on the other side, there is a lot of research on attachment and on unconscious communication on the relationship between uh, parents and children mm-hmm. tell 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 us how you how you describe epigenetics it's a big term people use it all the time and it's complex and yet at the same time for everyone to understand it's quite simple mm-hmm. right and it, it makes it yeah. makes sense yeah you know epigenetics is the biological mechanism, I would say, by which trauma is transmitted from one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's about the impact of the environment and especially trauma on the expression of genes, mm-hmm. which is the non-genetic influences and, and modifications of genes, gene expression. Interestingly, some of those uh, research, some of this research is done uh, not only on people, because on people, if we are talking about starting in the 60s, we don't have that many generations to go back. Mm-hmm. But on worms and other animals, you could they can yeah, they could see the, the change in expression expression of genes that goes back. And forgive me, I don't remember. I, I think the last thing I read was about eight generations. Wow. Which is Unbelievable, right? Mm -hmm. The good news is that the environment can change the expression of genes, but the environment can also change it back. Yes. Right? Right. Uh, And when we say environment, I don't want to confuse it with uh, what, right? Uh, With anything other than relationships uh, and trauma and and healing, the Mm -hmm. process of healing. Mm-hmm. And the process of of not only psychotherapy, but uh, the research is easy to do on psychotherapy, right? Because what they they really could measure people that mm-hmm. are in therapy. But there are many other healing ways, right? That 
that could impact the expression of genes. And of course, they analyze how genes are altered in the mm-hmm. offsprings of, mm-hmm. again, starting with Holocaust survivors. But these days, they look at any kind of survivors, including enslaved people right. and veterans, war veterans, um, and other big T traumas, what we call Big T, exactly. Um, yeah, it, the tea. way I think about it's been described to me and makes sense in my visual mind is we have these genes that are passed down to us and based on environmental factors um, and intergenerational um, transmittability, there's a button on the gene that might, that might be pressed. So the gene is expressed versus let's say dormant. That might be an oversimplification, but is that, is that somehow? I I love that. Okay. Yeah. So the button gets pressed and for example, we know from research, World War II research with um, the famine in the, it was in the Netherlands, the famine and the offspring of those mm-hmm. folks. Um, it had to do with their appetite, satiability, right? And like oh. there, there was an element of it, right? That they needed more food because they were starving in utero, right? That's an oversimplification. <laughs> right. But that's a button that gets pressed that, again, with healing right. in the current environment, and for those now adults, for their kids, those buttons can be unpressed with a combination right. of counseling, safe environments, good nutrition. But it 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 takes mm-hmm. it takes awareness, um, yeah. and and opening doors, which you write about so eloquently and do in the work you do. Right, opening these right. doors, opening doors, by, right, opening doors and. And, you know, gaining awareness of something that one has not heard about in words or experienced, but yet is caring from their parents and grandparents. Like how, you know, how do, how do we make sense of that? (laughs) Right. You know, the interesting thing about the nature and nurture thing is that a lot of people ask me, so what about adopted kids? Do they mm-hmm. not get their parents? No genes. And I think what we see in our practices is that they, they, in fact, they do have it, right? They do carry some of their parents' trauma, which really proves to us that some of it is not just genetic. Mm. That is, and that brings us to how, do, how does that happen? That yeah. some of it, this is carried in the attachment mm-hmm. and through the attachment to mm-hmm. a parents. The attachment unit is the, the most important human need that helps the child survive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we are attached to the people that raise us. We know them from inside. We feel them. And as you said, we know not only what they told us, but also what they don't tell us. Right. Right? We feel the omissions. Mm-hmm. We feel... Through implicit communications, through body mm-hmm. language, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few stories in the chapters in the book about something that a child knew but was never told about. Mm-hmm. So how does how do they know? Right? Mm-hmm. How does no one knows that he had right a, a sibling who died before he was born? And the answer is actually attachment. Because when you monitor, and you monitor, when you look at infant research, we know that from the moment of birth, babies, babies who are a, a minute year old, you know, a minute mm-hmm. old, they just, right, born, they already respond to their parents. 
right? And what they respond to is the the way their parents look at them. They look aside. If you talk to their parents about something traumatic and and something happens in their body, their breathing is changing. Mm-hmm. They're they're moving their head aside. They decide to stop the conversation. Right? All of those implicit signals mm-hmm. are registered without our awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a feeling. And uh, what you also write mm-hmm. about is, and we see this in practice all the time, is when when um, adults were traumatized, uh, abused, Mm -hmm. when their children become the ages of that correspond to their traumas, there's new triggers and new processing and new detachment. Um, you know, another thing, an expert at a level, you're also an expert in, um, you know, sexual abuse and sexual trauma and write about that and how much that obviously comes into intimacy and showing love and showing affection, uh, shame, all the things you don't talk about, right? Like this is central to what we're talking about. Right, exactly. It is exactly about that. The things that we talk about and how we talk about them and the things we don't talk about and how we register them and hold them in our minds. Mm -hmm. So, when you think of emotional inheritance, simply put, how should we be? How should we be? How should we be considering emotional inheritance? You know, first of all, I think we have to accept that we all have emotional inheritance, mm-hmm. and like every other inheritance, right? Sometimes when you get uh, financial inheritance, or or when you inherit, you have a parent who passed away. And you get all of their stuff. Some of it is valuable and some of it you don't want to keep. <laughs> right. 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 There you go. And, yeah. and what, right? And what mm-hmm. you hear is that uh, even with the, with the practical things, mm-hmm. right, a lot of it you think, oh, my God, am I going to throw this to the garbage? They loved it so much, but mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with that. Right? So I think some of those processes are processes of walking through that Mm -hmm. and working through that, right? Working through, and it starts with awareness. It starts with really unpacking it, saying like, Mm -hmm. okay, what do I have here? Mm -hmm. What did I get as an emotional inheritance? Right, like where did my parents come from? What was their upbringing like, Mm -hmm. right? How were they, what were things like in their family? How was love shown? Um, How were people treated? Um, with your parents, you talk about a, one of the common, and I find it, um, resilient trauma responses, your parents both growing up with different and similar traumas. You talked about how optimistic they were, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, like we're real, we're upbeat, optimistic, um, you know, let's focus on the positive and what an amazing coping mechanism. And at the same time, yeah. everything with coping also leaves something else, uh, something else there to be to grapple with. Can you talk about what you learned you needed to grapple with from from that resilient stance uh, from your parents? Yeah, 
It's a really great way to say it because I think my parents, both of them, especially my father actually is very resilient. Mm -hmm. And he always had used to say, and you know, everything that happens in te is temporary. Don't worry. Right. And you think to yourself, but, but dad, life is temporary. <laughs> right. Right. I think when they described their childhood, they always described it as beautiful. I talk in the book about idealization. There is a level mm -hmm. of idealization. It's beautiful. But of course, we grew up with the feeling that there are things we're not allowed to ask about mm -hmm. or to talk about. And we know it without fully knowing it. So when you talk about the emotional inheritance and how an awareness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. before, it sounds pretty simple, but you, I think people would be really surprised to know that most people don't do that. We don't think about these things, even though mm -hmm. it's, it sounds very obvious, mm -hmm. right? What my, our parents' trauma or grandparents' trauma was, how do we think about what happened to our parents, the way our parents were raised or, you know, anything when, when people come to therapy uh, in the first session, and I describe it in the book, there are a few things I ask in the first session that is like my my shtick, mm -hmm. right? One of them is the first memory, yep. which I assume holds in it mm -hmm. even previous memories and also future, right, uh, later memories than the memory that they describe. And sometimes the reason why people come to therapy is in that specific memory would it's really unbelievable yeah. to understand that in that there is right the presented problem what mm -hmm. we call mm -hmm. yeah and i also ask them about family trauma and i ask say did you have any trauma in your family and again you might be surprised or not surprised to know that most people say no and then we say okay let's sit with that so there is no trauma in your history in your parents history and in the double take, right, they were like, actually, that is that is the usually what happens. Mm -hmm. Even as I teach and I teach this material to clinicians, right? Clinicians say, I don't have family family trauma. There is no real trauma in my family. And as you think about it, in fact, there is no family without a history of trauma. No. Somewhere right? it's there. Somewhere, somewhere, yeah. something happened because this is life. Things right. happen to us. There is death. There is illness. Children lose their parents when they're young, mm -hmm. right? There is illegitimate abortions, right? And again, we can yeah. talk about big T traumas or small right. T traumas that are neglect, immigration, racism, right? There is so many kinds of traumas that each family carries something and mm -hmm. we don't always want to remember or even ask about it no and um i really appreciate the big t versus little t and um when we talk about that everyone you know the big t is something that is a significant traumatic event um the kind you think about when we think of the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd and uh, the reason it's important to differentiate this is as Galit, as you're saying, like you can't get through life without having some level of at least multiple small T's. You just, I mean, it's rare too. Right. And right. and what what seems to happen in the field is people say, well, if you don't have post-traumatic stress disorder, if you don't meet criteria for PTSD, then okay, you know, so 
we, then you're you're okay. You're not really that traumatized. <laughs> when right. it, it's, it's, isn't, traumatized. this isn't about exactly. a diagnostic label. Like trauma is trauma, and you can have one ginormous life altering event, or you can have multiple continuous um, traumatic events, and everywhere in between. Right, right. And and think about death even, right? Mm -hmm. It is amazing. But I mean, and I'm talking about it a little bit in in the book about my own loss of my life partner, Mm -hmm. a extremely traumatic experience, uh, struggling, battling with cancer for a few years. And even he used to say, I'm so traumatized by that. Those things, every time I go to the hospital to have a treatment, I come back as if somebody attacked me. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't talk about these things enough as traumatic, right? right? These treatments of, right, and, and cancer is all over. This is the most, the biggest illness uh, that we have. Mm-hmm. And and death, of course, uh, people's death, when somebody we love dies, it doesn't matter how old we are. It matters in a sense, and we can talk about that, about about losing a parent when you're a young child. And I talk about mm-hmm. that th- that trauma in the book. But even as, so to speak, grown-ups, right, mm-hmm. uh, loss can be very, very traumatic in a sense that after a loss of a close person, you can lose parts of your mind as well as part of the trauma. You mm-hmm. can become confused. You can become overwhelmed in ways that you don't remember things, right? Mm-hmm. And those are, right, the 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 ways we measure how traumatized we are, right? how right. much we can actually think. You know, and we focus on um, resilience and traumatic resilience, um, trauma resilience, which is a newer, newer term that we're talking about getting through the trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important. Th- what you're doing is you're normalizing trauma. It's important that people understand that experiencing trauma, having traumatic responses to traumatic events is a normal human, a natural human response. It's a biological response, mm-hmm. um, right. at, and which is often to cope, um, to survive at times an unthinkable situation. And what you're talking about is then there are degrees of response um, to that. There are some people that are actually get quite equipped of, to dissociate and to cope and to move on. And life is temp, everything's temporary. We're going to get through it. And then other traumas are quite debilitating um, and can have even short term right. or very long term significant effects on one's own life. But then, of course, on those they live with and love as well. Right, exactly. And it's it's not always so predictable, right? Mm-hmm, what is mm-hmm. going to impact whom and how. Mm-hmm. So as parents, as parents yeah. who are um, wanting to break the cycle, and, and when I and some of the cycles they might be aware of, some of the cycles they don't totally understand, but they can feel like mm-hmm. something happened, something wasn't right, they didn't like something. 
How do you recommend parents start to break the cycle to free their parent, their children, you know, from the, these legacies? You know, I think the first step is, uh, you know, you mentioned opening the door mm-hmm. is opening the door, right? It's almost like a spiritual way of saying that because mm-hmm. you open the door and the door is now open and things can come in and out. Mm-hmm. And there is a motion between past, present, and future. What does that mean mm-hmm. practically? Mm-hmm. It means trying to make connections, asking questions, mm-hmm. asking yourself questions, asking mm-hmm. your parents questions, trying to think, huh. And I think that the truth is this is the biggest compliment I got about uh, from people who read the book. Because the book is not a self-help book. It's not a book, as you mm-hmm. know, that you right. read it and there are instructions of how to break the cycle. Right. But every person who read it told me that they started making links about their own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that happened to you too, yeah. but I feel yeah. like that yeah. is the main feedback I got. Mm-hmm. Because you read about other people's life. You read about how it is transmitted, what is transmitted, in what ways, how they think about it the links they make, and you start making your own links. Mm-hmm. You start thinking, huh, actually mm-hmm. that reminds me of myself and that reminds me of my grandmother and my mother mm-hmm. and the way we were talking about our family history. Yeah, these, um, the secrets, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's is, is mm-hmm. would you say it's opening the door to allow the secrets to come through? like almost welcoming the family secrets so we can look at them. You know, I almost feel like look at them with respect because the family secrets are often tucked away in these, I imagine these dark, dank places, right? Like we just want to keep them away to rot and decay because of what they hold and carry. But in fact, we need to welcome them in. Right. And that is a very difficult thing to do, actually, because we we collude with family secrets for many reasons. We don't necessarily want family secrets to come to the surface because we're afraid. Uh, and there are many things to be afraid of, right? Including the well-being of our parents, including our own family structure and narratives and myths, and that we don't want to break anything. So we're very careful and I think that's one of the research on Holocaust survivors really found that the children tend not to ask because, because they are protecting their parents from reliving their traumas. And we have to accept that, right? As you said, mm-hmm. we want to go towards secrets with some caution because we want to know, right? And we kind of mm-hmm. smell and feel what is okay to ask when. Mm-hmm. How and you know people are, are often surprised that when they ask because parents also want to right protect their children that's why they don't tell them so when they ask the parents are sometimes very happy to tell them things that everybody tried to protect each other's mm-hmm. from from those secrets that that right. often we all know exist mm-hmm. right I just heard of somebody telling me like after reading the book and they said you know how interesting. I found out that my grandfather had a previous marriage that nobody talked about. Mm-hmm. And I found out because on my grandmother's sheets, mm-hmm. there was a initials of a name that we didn't know. 
Mm-hmm. And nobody ever asked. Mm-hmm. And then one day we asked and we found out something that we all s- kind of thought maybe happened because something about the narrative of the family didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of these, it's a small secret, right? For right. this family, it was a, a very big secret mm-hmm. um, that, that the grandma, you know, that the grandparents were not first married to each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the connections that I was making, um, was when I was seven, my grandfather suddenly died. Um, and I was, I was close to him. He was newly retired and the pain, my mother's pain and the pain of my aunts, her sisters, it was so overwhelming to me, um, that it impacted the way I, I couldn't, I, it, it, it hurt to see my mom so upset thinking about her dad mm-hmm. to the point that I would not talk about him. The point when someone would bring him up, I knew it would bring emotion in our family. And I'd be, yeah. I, I think I remember saying to my brother, no, 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 don't, don't say anything. Don't say anything. And it really impacted the yeah. way that I viewed death, funerals the, 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 for years and years. And I had to really unpack and uncover that to response, which I never would have thought, you know, even in graduate school, in my training, I never would have said, if someone yeah. said, did you, was that traumatic? I'm like, oh, it was a loss. It was terrible. But it truly did sure. impact um, in a very significant right. way the way I handled myself and thought of death and, and do think of death. So right. these, are, these are some it of the things that, you. yeah, it really does yeah. shape you. Yeah. Yeah, it um, shapes you. I think this is one of the things we find out, right? That these things that we don't fully register as as impacting us with in a big way right they mm-hmm. actually shape who we are yeah yeah and and it's visceral it's a, it's a visceral thing i know mm-hmm. that um you know the older you get the more people who pass away and always when yeah. it's hey this person passed here's the f- you know the funeral or the memorial my first response i still have a visceral you know run away, don't go, you know, but it's like, I don't like take a deep breath and I know where it comes from. And then I have to, you know, uh-huh. step into what I, what I want, really want to be doing. But this, this is how you describe in, in the yeah. book, you know, this beautiful uncovering of, well, it's an uncovering of awareness. And, and when people become aware of the chains, visible and invisible, the secrets you talk about, there is room to take another path or to uh, yeah. make a little um, uh, a little uh, a little drop of one of the stories is um, t- to take the wheel. Eve was able to take the wheel, right? Um, mm, at the end, yeah. was it Eve? Is it Eve? It was able to take, yes, she, yes. It was Eve. she was, was able, able to take the she wheel. Was able to literally take, exactly, exactly. Everyone, exactly. you need to, you need to read, you need to read the book to know what we're talking about. But, um, it becomes comp- so powerful for people as they go through the process um, and this work to realize there are other ways of being. There are other choices. Um, it, it's like mm-hmm. it opens up so much more possibility than was known. Yeah, I think that is that is the way people describe it, and I would describe the book is about. Uh, opening the path 
right? Mm -hmm. And it's blocked by mm -hmm. things that we are, when we talk about secrets, those secrets are not necessarily secrets we don't know, paradoxically. Some of them are secrets we never heard about and don't know. And some of them are secrets, as I write in the third uh, uh, section of the book, secrets we keep from ourselves, which means these are things that we know, but we never think about and we never put together. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to put things together and to think them through as opposed to right knowing, oh, no, on that street, something bad can happen. So let me always go around in a different way. Right. Mm -hmm. That means that you have one path that is always blocked mm -hmm. because you can't touch that and you can't walk there. We want to make sure that we have that we have everything open and we could mm -hmm. we could walk wherever we want. Yes. As much as we can. Yes. And psychotherapy um, is such a powerful tool. We know is not available for everyone since COVID mm -hmm. um, started. There still isn't. There still isn't enough. There aren't enough services. However, there is far more access with many more um, right. organizations, virtual, non-virtual, and it, it's so powerful. I, I wanted to, you know, quote your quote of Dr. Stephen Stahl, um, a researcher professor. He says psychotherapy. Well, you you say psychotherapy can be conceptualized as an epigenetic drug since it changes the circuitry of the brain like drugs. Like that's powerful, right? That, mm -hmm. That's that's what we talked about. We're 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 unpressing buttons. Back to our epigenetic uh, little conversation, right? Like a button's press that we don't. It's not really helpful. <laughs> and right. through psychotherapy, um, all forms of psychotherapy, the the button can be unpressed. Yes, and I think that there are many ways to do that. Many mm -hmm. forms of healings, right? Mm -hmm. Psychotherapy is one of them, psychoanalysis or CBT or or other ways, right? And some people, f for me, you know, the book is not just for people who seek therapy. I think there is a way in which you could work through something in your community, in your awareness, and with other people, which yes. is, of course, important, right? And you can yes. find your own ways of of looking for 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 healing, I want to say, as much as that sounds um, like a big word, healing, but but looking yes. for answers. I think there is one story where I talk about uh, this woman, Naomi, who doesn't have answers because she doesn't have questions, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So the first step is is actually to have questions. We form our questions before we find our mm -hmm. answers. Mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm. I'm really glad you highlighted the non-psychotherapy forms of healing. Um, we were talking about mm -hmm. Dr. Bruce Perry at the outset of the show, and um, his work has shown um, so many different ways of healing based on, as we were talking yeah. about, song, dance, um, um, yeah. the massage therapy, although what som somatic. The, so the sensory system, the therapy of the sensory system, yeah. um, being yeah. being in an, a meaningful, safe community with relationships. There, there's so exactly. many other things um, that that are that are necessary for healing, right? That are just necessary. Right. Um, and even psychotherapy, it doesn't is not 
the the magic word that could heal somebody without having other things in yes. their lives as well. Yes. Right? So we're really talking here about something more holistic. And mm-hmm. people find when people look to to get better or to heal, mm-hmm. they find what's right for them. It's yes. not right psychotherapy or any other kind of mm-hmm. modality is not for everyone. We mm-hmm. need to know, and I think that is speaking of parenthood, right? That is the one thing that is the most important thing in my mind is that we need to know what's right for us. Mm-hmm. And and knowing what's right for us as parents, th- that trickles down to our kids, right? I mean, we live in a yeah. world where we spend so much energy on our children and supporting our children mm-hmm. with with love and great intention. And I think often at the expense of parents focusing on their own growth and health, not not really realizing mm-hmm. that that is one of the, not only is that the best thing that one could do for oneself, but also for one's children. Definitely, definitely. And the ability to talk to our children, right? It's, it's, it's each age with whatever is appropriate for that age with honesty mm-hmm. with honesty with with in, in intimacy right to have to have a dialogue that asks what do you need what do i mm-hmm. need and it's related even to our family history mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, how do we sit together and talk mm-hmm. about us our yes. family our history where we come from what we have to deal with what each of us have to deal with uh, that is sometimes different from the others yeah, uh, you know, in yeah. the book I mentioned the uh, the identified patient, right? Uh, right. right, the identified right. patient is uh, just to define it briefly is that person in the family that comes to therapy that is sent to therapy for the right. whole family, right? That right. holds the family symptoms, yes. right? And you realize uh, I used to work with families, right? The whole family comes in, and mm-hmm. you realize, oh, that child that is sent to therapy actually expresses for everybody, mm-hmm. right? The 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 problems in the family. Right, right. And so that is that these are things that we could become aware of. Mm-hmm. And we we can't we can't change the past. We can't change what our grandparents went through, what our parents went through, even what many times that we have gone through. But as you write about in the book, you know, the hope comes from increasing one's awareness to be able to weave together a narrative which as you put it you know there there's it's there's more roads mm-hmm. there's more paths there there's more options with a new narrative yes with a new narrative and with our active agency mm-hmm. right which mm-hmm. is the ability to change right our own ability to change and mm-hmm. And and a right and awareness is about agency. It's what we could do in order to change our life, and in order to have. Uh, I, in the book, I said change faith into je- destiny, which is the difference. The difference yes. is that yes. it is about right. The destiny is mm-hmm. something that we could in, influence, mm-hmm. impact yes. where we go. Yes. You said when we can learn to identify the emotional inheritance that lives within us things start to make sense and our lives begin to change. Yeah, that's, I think that's the way, that's a way to summarize um, 
<laughs> the wonderful your the wonderful book the wonderful the stories um everyone you you have to read these stories because you do you learn so much from listening to these stories and also the patient and um it just Galit, you're so patient with your with your patients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a reader, as a as a psychologist and psychotherapist, I'm always so intrigued with people's stories that I'm like, oh gosh, I would want to ask <laughs> them that there. How that's so great. You let that go <laughs> so you could let them sit with it. Like it takes <laughs> such patience and art to take people along in a pace that they are ready. And it does give us all hope for the, for the human, this ability to, to, to grow and heal. Thank you for saying that. I think some of it is really about respecting our mind and our unconscious mind, Mm -hmm. right. And letting the mind lead us to the answers. Yes. Well, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. (laughs) Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as a person, as a parent, or even an awareness of your parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your kids, and or those you love. And my firstborns were twins. And I remember that the one thing that you have twins people really, really scare you. And they tell you, oh, my God, you know, this I think double the trouble. Yeah. Right. And I used to walk with the twins and everybody would stop us in the twins and say, double the trouble. And my twins learned from very young age <laughs> things. They started talking to say, no, we are double the pleasure. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. So I know. So I think breastfeeding, for example, was very challenging with twins. And people had a lot of advice for me. And I remember that I felt that maybe that means that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not a good mom. And I was sitting there and at some point I said, okay, you know, you know what, stop. And I went to the room and I said, I need to think about what is right for me. What makes me feel, even if it's objectively wrong, okay, if there is such a thing as objectively wrong, right, mm-hmm. in that uh, context, what is right for me? What is the right thing that I could do? Years later, and again, it's the theme of food, right? I was feeding them. The, the, my son was about uh, four years old, I think. The teacher called me to the class and she said, I need to tell you something. Yali never finishes his lunch. And when I came to him and I said, Yali, you have to finish the lunch that your mom makes you. He said, no, my mom said that I should not listen to you. That I should (laughs) listen only to my stomach. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, that's embarrassing, but it's amazing, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Listen to your own body. Um, Listen to your own body. Listen to your own body. And it's that, gosh, if if we can teach our kids to listen to their own bodies and to what right what feels comfortable what does not feel comfortable and set those boundaries for themselves and with others that is huge yeah Galit, thank you for this conversation today. I'm so excited for your book to uh, to be out and uh, for others to to learn through your life experience, your professional experience, and through your patients' experience who um, who are shared in, in this book. 
tell everyone what what to look for, where they can find your book and and on, of course your several others as well. Mm-mm. So first of all, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure and a wonderful conversation. And thank you for inviting me to talk to you. And my book is uh, in every bookstore, actually, including Amazon online and your local bookstores. And it's everywhere. And the reviews are so moving and so beautiful for mm-hmm. me to mm-hmm. hear. And I love hearing from people mm-hmm. how it impacts them and how they feel about it. And, you know, these days in social media days, mm-hmm. you get so much feedback for everything mm-hmm. you put out there, right? Yes. Through social media and through my website. and through. Mm-hmm. So I hear a lot of feedback. And, of course, Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews are really really moving. Mm-hmm. So I am very grateful to the people who read the book. It, it is very meaningful to me to put my work out there. Well, and the, and the word beautiful keeps coming up and it's true. And I, I was just putting this together is, um, it is, it, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful, they're beautiful story and it's story of trauma. And you know what? It, talk about changing the dialogue and changing the narrative. If we're thinking about beauty and trauma on a way, a path of healing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That concludes a meaningful discussion about being human, the trauma that we all carry, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our parents, the traumas we've experienced, and how awareness, trying to open doors, trying to be patient with ourselves, trying to look at these things in a way, of course, for the health of our own kids. Um, There's nothing more powerful and meaningful. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your five-star reviews, for bringing people to our community, for sharing your episodes, for joining us on our premiere episodes. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.